We'll go to him, Lord. Yes, praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. It's the highest praise that we can attribute to you, Lord. So we give that to you this morning. We say hallelujah to the great and mighty name of Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you are alive and you are well today. Interceding on our behalf, Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your presence. Words cannot begin. utter the greatness of who you are, Lord. Your magnificent faithfulness that is completely constant when we are not, Lord, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the blood of your Son. Thank you for the indwelling Christ, the Holy Spirit that points us to Jesus. Thank you for your word. It is inspired and for our good today. Your very word, your very self, through your word given to us. What a weighty thing it is to come to your word. Lord, thank you that we have the opportunity to stand in the presence of a holy God and read your word straight. Lord, I pray that you focus our minds and our hearts around your word. That we come, as the book of James says, again and again, like a man looking at his face in the mirror. Lord, we want to be conformed to the image of Christ this morning. So, Lord, show us those places, those things, those thoughts, those those um, places in our lives and those thought patterns that we allow to persist, Lord. Anything that is against your word, Lord, help us to bring it into submission to you. You are God. <laughs> Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your word. We leave this place bearing fruit, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to have Brandon Delk with us today. I did not think my voice would have lasted two messages this morning. I'm pretty sure it would not have. Um, but after hearing the message this morning in the early service, I told Pastor Brandon as we were walking away that it was obvious to me this was God's providence to uh, work this out for Brandon to be here this morning and to preach this message to this congregation. And uh, I know it will be an encouragement to everyone in this second service. Uh, a lot of Brandon's families here. Brandon grew up in our church, of course. You probably know Brandon Delk. He grew up in our church. He's uh, married to Bethany. His wife is here. And his, I uh, see, Bethany, your parents are here too. Yeah, very good. Welcome to you. And also Joan, uh, Brandon's mother, and Ben and Annette, grandparents. Don't want to forget them. They're the most important people around, aren't they, brother? That's right. Before Brandon comes to preach, I want to summarize something he's been through in the last five years. He was diagnosed with Crohn's disease five years ago. Been in the hospital, he said he'd really lost count, didn't know exactly how many times, 30 or more times in those five years. Uh, he spent two weeks in the hospital this year, and in that process, five surgeries as well. So he's been through a, a season of suffering and he and his family together. And God uses these things to mold us. And uh, it's obvious he's used it in the life of Brandon. We're glad to have him this morning. Let's welcome Brandon as he comes to share God's word. <clears throat> it's good to be here. Thank you uh, for the opportunity. I'm thankful for that. Excited to be here. I asked in the first service as I was reaching to take a sip of this, had Pastor Paul drank out of it. And so I know my wife well enough to know that if I hadn't asked that question and she happened to see it, she, she couldn't think, she wouldn't be focused on what I was saying. Uh, it's good to be here. I'm thankful for the opportunity and excited to share uh, with you this morning. We had a sweet time in the first uh, service. And so uh, I'm praying that the Lord continues that. At, um, as Pastor Paul said today, I said in the first service, you know, I try to keep track of um, what, when he called me this week and we were talking and he um, laid out why uh, he needed me to be here. And um, I said, you know, hey, I'm, I try to keep track of the messages that I've preached and where and when and all that kind of stuff. I said, but I can't, you know, guarantee that I'm not going to double dip sometime or somewhere and, um, but I, 
there's definitely a theme um, of today's message. If you were here in November, uh, I spoke really on the topic of suffering in the life of the believer and what its role was. And, um, and so today, I just wanted to share with you uh, some verses that have been meaningful to me in my life in the last season, in the last few years. And um, I hope that it's profitable to you. To, today is definitely, a, uh, there's a common theme. It will be from the overflow of kind of what I'm learning and just kind of sharing my heart with you this morning. And so um, I hope that it is beneficial to you. I said in the first service, and I believe obviously uh, for this service as well, that the Lord has something for us this morning. Chiefly that you as a believer or if you're not a believer, that today would be the day. But for those of us who trust in Christ, would leave this place being refreshed and encouraged, knowing that he is working all things out for our good. And so, just on the, on the onset here, I believe that the Lord has you here this morning to encourage you. You know, maybe you, like me, and you got kids and you had to fight the fight to get to church this morning, or you weren't feeling well this morning. But it's not by accident that you are here in God's providence. And I hope that you will be encouraged uh, by our time in the Word this morning. Like I said, I want to share some verses that have been meaningful to me in this season of my life. And, um, you know, obviously I, I, I like Scripture and I believe that it's pertinent in all seasons and all aspects um, of our life. And, you know, many of us have favorite verses, and these verses I'm, I'm sharing with you this morning, you know, if you were asked, are these my favorite verses, or what's my favorite verse, you know, asking me to pick a favorite verse is like asking me to pick my favorite kid. You know, it's difficult. They're all unique in their own way, and it's applicable in, in all seasons, but these are ones that are, are, are coming from an overflow of where I've been and have been particularly rich to me in this last season. They're all special. All of Scripture is special and unique in its own way, and I believe that the entirety of Scripture is profitable and applicable to our lives. But with that in mind, I definitely have verses that speak uh, to me more in certain seasons of my life, and these are some of those. Most of you know, as Pastor Paul said, uh, this has been a difficult season for us, and it's not limited to me. My, my situation looks different than probably a lot of yours, but it doesn't make it any worse or any better or um, it's just, it just is the, what the Lord has ordained for us uh, to walk through. But it, it has been a difficult, uh, transparently, it's been a difficult season for us, for our family. Probably more for my wife and my extended family than it has been for me uh, as the one to have walked through it. Um, and as a result of this season that we've been walking through, the verses that um, we are holding tight to seem to have a common theme. And that's definitely the theme of these verses this morning, and that theme is trust. Some of my favorite verses in this season of our lives have to do with trust and trusting in God. Trusting God, holding tight to his promises, growing in his sufficiency, meaning that he alone is all I could ever need and taking delight in that. And before we get going this morning, I must confess that what I'm about to talk about, I'm not good at. I am still learning like you when I'm trying to practice what I'm about to preach and um, it's not easy for me to do what I'm about to encourage you to do and so I'm uh, right there with you in learning and, and trying to put this into practice in my life. I'm the type of person that's prone to try to work out solutions on my own, to try to control things on my own. I think I've probably told you when I've spoken here uh, many times before that I, it's a common theme for me that I like to be in control. I'm not good at yielding control of, of things in my life to other people. I shared in the first service that we were just on vacation last week and um, we drove, we were driving, coming back about 12, 13, 14. They, it all ran together by the time everybody had to stop and go to the bathroom 73 times. Um, <laughs> But it was a long trip, and I was driving that trip, and the small fraction of time that my wife drove to give me a bit of rest, 
uh, or designed or, or intended rest, I had a hard time resting. She's more than capable, but I just am not good at not being in control. You know, I would, you know, over there pump, pumping the brakes kind of thing, holding the bar and stop. You know, I'm looking ahead, stop, stop. And my mom had ridden with her earlier in the week. She said, I got it honest. But um, I'm not good at not being in control. I think that is a default mechanism for a lot of us. We want to be in control of our circumstances, of our situations, of whatever it is that we may be going through. And these verses that I'm going to share with you this morning, they serve as a reminder and as a command to me because they put the focus back onto the one who is capable as they reveal my own inability. And so with that in mind, let me just share these verses with you and what I've learned from them in the next few moments. The first one is Psalms 46. Psalms 46.10, it's going to be familiar to most everybody in this room, and it says simply this, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. This verse is often interpreted to encourage us to meditate on God or to have quiet time with God. And when I read this verse, it immediately invokes a picture of tranquility, of calm, of serenity. And that's great. That's what it's designed to do. It's meant to be an encouragement to us to invoke those feelings of peace. But it is not simply meant to be a verse of encouragement to us. It's not simply designed to invoke those feelings of peace and then we just move right past them. This verse is more than just an encouragement. It's not meant simply as an encouragement, but it's also an exhortation. We view it oftentimes as a parent that's giving comfort to a child, but the context of this verse is not simply about a comfort, a comforting God, but it's also about a conquering God. This verse is not simply limited to being an encouragement to us where we read it and we feel all warm and fuzzy and then we just move on continuing to do the things that we were doing before. This verse is an exhortation inspired by God, written by David as a command to us to be still and let him work on our behalf. Be still and know that he is God. Be still and rest in his peace. Be still and let him bring about his plan in his providence the things that he's already accomplished this verse is again not simply about a comforting God but it's also about a conquering God we can rest we can live out this command because of God being a conqueror the Hebrew word used here is the word Rapha translated that means to slacken to cease to forsake Instead of reading it as, hey, just relax and believe that God is in control, it is meant to be a strongly worded command. David is saying, stop. Stop what you are doing. Stop trying to do things on your own, in your own power. Rapha, abandon, relax, forsake your efforts and rest in God's conquering power. Instead of it being a timid, passive suggestion, it is an authoritative command. God is commanding me to back off and let him worry about all the outcomes that I can't control. Again, I said this verse is being authored by David. Many of us know all about the life of David. We've learned about it you know, from the time we were in Sunday school with our primary pals and all that kind of, in the flannel graph and all that kind of stuff. And I remember, I can tell you all about David's life really just by being in church, right? So if you've been in church for any amount of time, you probably know all about the life of David from the time he was a young boy and what he experienced with Goliath and then how he was anointed by Samuel to be um, God's chosen leader for the nation of Israel and how that upset Saul and all the things that he experienced as a result of that, his life on the run. And so here is a guy who has experienced great highs, great um, victories directly as a result of the Lord. Supernatural things that would not have occurred if it weren't for God intervening on his behalf. He's understood that God is a conqueror, that he can take fact or take rest in the fact that God is our comforter because he is our conqueror. David has experienced this firsthand in very tangible yet supernatural ways. Scripture says that he was a man after God's own heart. He sought the Lord 
all throughout his life, there were tangible and direct instances of the power of God moving and working to position David. Great battles have been won. God has spared David's life from the king who turned on him and sought to kill him. David has known intimacy of relationship with God. And here he is writing this verse, and I can imagine as he's writing it, he is reminding himself, thinking back on all of the evidences of God's work in his life, saying, hey man, you've seen God's power at work. How dare you worry or be anxious or try to control your own situations? Again, we've, we know the life of David. We know what he's experiencing. And I, I can just take myself probably to the cave that David may be in, in the midst of someone literally trying to take his life out of jealousy. And he's running and he's tired and he's weary and he's frustrated. And he's probably thinking back to all of the promises of God before and the victories that he has experienced. Yet he's writing this, and I, I can just picture this tension, this struggle that David has as he's thinking, wait, but I know all the things that God has promised me. I know all of the things that I've experienced. Yet on the other hand, he feels so far away. And David's writing this, and he's saying, be still. Be still in the midst of turmoil. Be still and rest in his power. Here's the beauty of this verse. Even though this is a command, it doesn't lose its comforting power. God is the great comforter because he is the great conqueror. I can be comforted in the command to be still and let him fight my battles, let him worry about my future, because I can rest in his perfect plan and unmatchable power. We can rest in that. Psalm 46 should be an encouragement. It should be a comfort to us at the same time that it is an exhortation. But as it is an exhortation or a command, it gives us the ability to live it out, to, to take rest and refuge in being able to walk it out with confidence because of God is a comforter. You see how the Holy Spirit is using that. It's a, it's a comfort because he is a conqueror. God is reminding us to be still and to let him fight our battles. Because of my sinful nature, I naturally want to work out my outcome for myself. Many times my pride leads me to believe that my outcome would be better than God's outcome. If you're like me, we grow frustrated and disillusioned when we get the outcome. We don't get the outcome that we think we should get when we labor in our suffering, when there seems to be no end in sight. And if you've been around for any amount of time, you know that this life has sorrows. We experience suffering in this life. And maybe you came to Christ with the thought of, man, I'm going to give my life to Christ. And as a pastor, I've, I've seen this time and time and time again, especially as it relates to baptism. Somebody will give their life to Christ and they'll be baptized and they, they immediately believe that things are going to be different and the struggles that they dealt with before are just going to magically be gone. And sometimes in God's providence, that is the case. I've known people who struggled with a substance addiction or whatever it may be that miraculously and instantaneously never had you know, the craving for that again. I don't discount that. But for the vast majority of people, it is work. It's hard. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're disillusioned thinking, man, I, I thought I was giving my life to Christ and things were going to be great and, and I was never going to experience any trouble. But for those of us who have belonged to Christ for any amount of time or really just life in general, it, it's not limited to, uh, to believers. It's, it's unbelievers as well. You know that this life brings about sorrow. We all experience that. The things that Paul was just talking about, Pastor Paul was just sharing about from a, a prayer request standpoint. Why do we experience the things that we do? Why do our loved ones die an early and, and ugly death? Why do we labor with struggling with chemotherapy and cancer treatments? Why do, you know, people that I remember from the time I was little that are on death's doorstep right now who may meet Jesus today. Why do we experience those things? Why do we have suffering in this life? And we know that none of us are spared from that. First Peter talks about that we should rejoice in our suffering 
Because if Christ has experienced the suffering, we should expect the suffering as well. But not only that, those of us who are participants in the suffering with Christ will be partakers of the glory that Christ has already experienced. See, when we understand that, when we begin to view it in that lens, it makes our suffering more tolerable. But oftentimes, even though we know these things, we, go fr- we grow frustrated and disillusioned when we don't get the outcome that we think, when we labor in our suffering, when there seems to be no end in sight, and we can't grasp how the Apostle Paul can write to rejoice consistently in all circumstances to the Thessalonians. He wrote that to the Thessalonian church who were de- dealing with great hardship. Friend, your suffering may not end in this life, but you have everything that you need. Our suffering may not come to an end on this side of eternity, but as we just sang about and worshiped and lifted our hands, the promises of God, we literally sang that. The promises of God are yes and amen to the believer in eternity. And so when we begin to grasp that, to understand that at a deeper level, it causes us to be able to be still and rest in the work that God is doing in our lives. It's hard to grasp that because we're conditioned to live for the temporal, the, to gratify our pleasures now in the moment, to seek satisfaction immediately. We see that all throughout Scripture. Jacob and Esau is an example where Esau was out working in the fields or hunting, and he came back, and he was so famished. We call that hangry, right? He was hangry. He was so upset. He wanted food that he was willing to trade his birthright for a bowl of lentil stew, for a bowl of soup. But just like Esau acted impulsively, demonstrating that he didn't value his birthright over a bowl of stew, we do the same thing by falling away and growing frustrated so easily. We are conditioned to seek the temporal. I was having this conversation with my mom a couple weeks ago. I know, I know these things, right? We know these things. That's not, I'm not... This isn't earth-shattering news to anybody. But it's hard to walk out. It's hard to live out. We know we don't live for this life. This is not our best life now. We live for eternity. And all the things that I've just communicated, a lot of times we know and we ultimately believe. But yet, just like Paul writes, the things that I want to do, I can't make myself do. And the things I hate, I find myself doing so much. We fall victim to that too. We are so guilty of saying, you know what? I'm going to willingly knowingly sacrifice the eternal for the temporal because that's what brings me satisfaction and pleasure in this moment. It's hard to do. So since we know that about ourselves and we know that this is a command and ultimately the vast majority of us believe the promises of God, believe this specific verse, how do I grow or get better at being still? As I'm comforted, how can I rest in the command to be still? This leads to the second verse that I'm holding tightly to in this season, and it's this. Isaiah chapter 26, verses 3 and 4. It says, You will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Trust in the Lord always, for the Lord God is the eternal rock. If we are ever going to grow in this discipline of being still, we are going to have to hold tight to this truth found in Isaiah. When you look at the context of this passage in Isaiah, it really resonates and speaks to me. Isaiah is in this book warning the nation of Israel of what is to come. We see that um, all throughout the nation of Israel's history that uh, as they obeyed, they experienced blessing, and as they disobeyed, they experienced curses, and that's why they were uh, slaves in, in the land of Egypt and so many other times their neighbors the Lord would allow their neighbors to come in and conquer them as a result of their sin or literally thinking that they could do it in and of themselves. They wanted a king, he gave them a king and so on and so forth. And so um, it was a result of them looking around and saying, well, I want what they have and I want to be like this and literally not trusting God at his word, saying that my plans are better. And as a result of that, they experience hardships and they experience suffering. And here we see that they are being oppressed by 
neighboring people. They have fought. Their kingdom and lands have been conquered. And they're experiencing great judgment and trial. But here in this passage, in the midst of warning and of rebuke, Isaiah burst into a song of joy. This passage reads like a declaration of trust, of rejoicing in times of trial. Isaiah is telling Israel, hey, even though we are facing trials and life is hard for us, we can rejoice in this peace, in this truth that we have. This passage is a reminder to the nation of Israel and it should be a reminder to us that we ultimately experience peace as a result of God's efforts and not ours. In the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our difficulties, he will keep us in perfect peace when our minds are fixed on him. So with those two verses in mind, being still and the command to be still and taking comfort in God, how do we be still? We be still by understanding that this is the peace that he's offering to us and by keeping our mind fixed on Christ so that we can experience this peace, so that we can be still. How do we do that? Here's a couple of observations that I've learned in this season and want to share with you this morning. The first one is this. Perfect peace can be had in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of trials, not in the absence of them. I believe this is what God is teaching me in this season. That perfect peace and joy are a grace he bestows on his children in the midst of difficulty, not in the absence of it. For a long time, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, I have fought hard to try and minimize hardship in any capacity in my life, thinking that the absence of difficulty is going to be the catalyst to joy, right? That's our human nature. That's a result of the depravity of our, of, of our fallen self, the sin nature that we're born into. Nobody had to teach us to do that. We don't want to experience hardship. And so when it comes in any form in our lives, whether it be spiritual or physical or, or whatever uh, shape it may take in our lives, our natural instinct is to try to rid ourselves of that. The world is spending, and, and we as believers a lot of times are spinning our wills and spending our efforts trying to minimize our life of hardship thinking that that will be what brings about ultimate joy and peace. And we are missing the peace and joy that he is offering in the midst of our circumstance that can only be found by experiencing the suffering and the trials that we're going through. And so I have to remind myself constantly that joy and peace is found in the midst of my hardship, not as a result of not having any. If you're like me, here's the thing. We spend so much time thinking or, try, or seeking to fill our lives with things that will not bring us satisfaction. If you're a believer, you should be able to remember back to a time in your life where you were trying to fill your life with things that would not bring about ultimate satisfaction. And hopefully there's some juxtaposition there between understanding what, that was, what my life was like before Christ when I didn't get any satisfaction. I, I, I couldn't think of a better term. I didn't want to use that term. But when you, when, you couldn't, when you could not get peace versus your life after Christ and hopefully experiencing the peace and the satisfaction and the fulfillment that only he brings. Even... Myself as a believer, I have to remind, I have to constantly work at this to remind myself that, hey, this next thing or whatever it may be is not ultimately what's going to bring about satisfaction in my life. If you're here today and you've never trusted on Christ as Savior and you're just spending your efforts trying to acquire or thinking that, that peace and contentment is right around the corner when you get the next job or the next thing or the next substance, or maybe you're at the end of your rope here, believer or non-believer, and you're needing to be reminded of this like, hey, you, you've spent, you've, you're spinning your wheels trying to acquire or get things. That is not going to bring contentment to you. You're spinning your wheels. You're, you're spending your effort on things that aren't lasting. And I say that because this. I'm constantly seeing that once one hardship is gone, another is right around the corner. 
So after I've spent all of my time and effort trying to rid myself of hardship instead of learning in the midst of my hardship, another hardship is right around the corner. So here's this. So my joy and peace better not be predicated on the absence of those trials because if so, I'll never experience it. If you're thinking that your joy and peace in this life is predicated upon the absence of hardship in your life, you will never experience it. The second thing I've learned is that perfect peace can only be understood as a result of difficulty. The trials and hardships that we face are the vehicle the Lord uses to bring about peace and joy. I am learning to not view this hardship as an obstacle to peace and joy, but rather as the vehicle that the Lord is using to install this peace and joy in my life. Suffering is a refiner of our joy. Because we, like I just said, we spend so much time trying to acquire a false peace or a false joy, that suffering is a means the Lord is using to strip away all of that temporal stuff to bring about a lasting and perfect joy and peace. Suffering is a refiner that is bringing about a joy that is incorruptible. Jesus tells us in John 16, that we can expect trials and troubles, but not to be discouraged, rather to take heart knowing that he has overcome the world. Again, this goes back to Psalm 46, speaking to him being a conqueror. Literally, we can rest in him and have peace knowing that our present hardship has already been overcome. While we are in the middle of our suffering, Jesus is on the other side of it, already having overcome. So we can delight in that, pick up our bootstraps and press on with confidence, knowing that it's only temporary. Knowing this makes Paul's exhortation to the church in Thessalonica when he writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16, 17, and 18. Those are the verses where Paul is saying, Rejoice continually in all circumstances. Pray continually in everything give thanks. Knowing that we can have peace in the middle of our suffering makes that exhortation more attainable. It makes it more achievable. See, when I grow in my recognition that Christ is all I need, it makes it possible for me to rejoice in the midst of my hardship. It makes it possible for me to experience peace in the midst of my hardship. The third thing I've learned, the peace that we experience and display in times of trouble is our greatest witness. We live in an extremely difficult context to share our faith. There is so much technology and stuff that compete for our attention and keep us distracted. And as a result, it is increasingly difficult for us to build relationships in an intentional way so that we can share our faith. We now have access to all kinds of information as a result, and as a result, our world believes that we are becoming more enlightened when in reality we're becoming more deceived. Time Magazine recently had an issue on the, and on the cover it, it was big bold type and it said this, is truth dead? And when I read that, I think I was checking out somewhere, grocery store checkout line or something and when I read that I remember it stopping me in my tracks and I've been thinking about that question ever since because that's what our world is asking and living like, is truth dead? And to answer the question, it most certainly is not. It serves to show the depth of our deception and depravity as a people. See, it's a false, premise, a false premise because truth, by its very definition, cannot be changed. But that's not what society is teaching us to think. That's not what I'm having to guard my children from learning in this society. It's pervasive. We live in a postmodern world where our kids are taught and we're taught that there's no such thing as absolute truth. That truth is whatever you want it to be. Whatever you define truth as is what it is. Whatever your personal truth is, that's truth. Each person can dictate their own personal truth. And my friend, I'm here to encourage you this morning and tell you unashamedly that God's word is the source of truth. It is absolute and unchanging. Its promises and applications are eternal. It cannot be tweaked, rewritten, or redefined to fit what we think it ought to say. And as a believer, we must conform to it and not make, seek to make it conform to us. As a result of all of this, the greatest opportunity that we have to show God's word as authentic is to demonstrate its peace in times of hardship. 
It is the difficulty, the suffering that we're going through is the vehicle that the Lord not only wants to use to bring about a perfect peace and joy that is incorruptible in our lives, but to show that peace and joy to others, to cause others to take notice and say, listen, I know, I'm aware, I see you daily, I work with you, whatever it may be, I'm in relational community with you, and I see the things that you struggle with. How in the world are you still standing? What better opportunity or witness do we have than in that moment to tell them, let me tell you why I'm standing. It has nothing to do with me or my ability or, in fact, it's quite the opposite. I've tried to control things myself so many times and look where that ended me. But here's what I've learned based upon the absolute unchanging promises of God's word. To a world that craves authenticity, it is our greatest witness. Do you desire for your children to grow up knowing that the word of God is as real as anything we can touch or see? Do you desire for your family to be transformed? Do you want to see a transformation in attitude? Do you desire to see the culture around us be transformed? Then demonstrate God's peace in the midst of trouble. It's not a natural response for us to be joyous in spite of difficulty. It will cause people to take notice. John Piper says, the greatest way to show someone that some the greatest way to show that someone satisfies your heart is to keep on rejoicing in them when all other supports for your satisfaction are falling away. A couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, actually, towards the beginning of summer, we've been going through the book of Romans as a church uh, this whole year. And um, one of our pastors, Pastor Will Toburin, was speaking and if you were here in November, I already think I referenced it, but I spoke specifically on suffering in the life of the believer. And uh, my man captured in a, a short snippet or paragraph here, statement, what it took me 40 minutes to try to capture, and I thought it was brilliant. He said this, God has to be more beautiful to us, more glorious to us, and more valuable to us than whatever it is that suffering threatens to take from us. That is our greatest witness. So in a world where we are surrounded by stuff competing for our time as a people who are depraved and will 10 times out of 10 choose sin, how do we trust in the Lord? And how do we keep our thoughts fixed on the Lord? If we desire to be still, to rest in that command to be still, we know that we do that by keeping our mind fixed on him because that's what brings about a perfect peace. How do we keep our mind fixed on the Lord. Jesus himself gives us the equation in John 15, 5. He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. The Greek word used here for abide is the Greek word menon. Translated, it means to remain or continue. Jesus tells us to remain in him, to continue growing in our drawing close to him. We need to abide to remain and continue drawing close to him so that he will keep us in perfect peace as we experience a perfect joy in order that we can be still. Let me say that again. We need to abide to remain and continue drawing close to Jesus so that he will keep us in perfect peace, Isaiah 26, as we experience a perfect joy in order that we can be still, Psalm 46. As we experience the peace and joy in the midst of our hardship, it is the fuel that causes us to continue abiding in Christ, John 15, 5. And as we continue to abide in Christ, we, are, we have the ability to live out these commands in these scriptures that we've seen and as such be a witness to those around us. How beautiful is that? How beautiful is the providence of God that as we do what he tells us to do, it gives us the fuel to keep doing what he tells us to do. It's beautiful. What a beautiful picture. So what are the means by which we remain in Christ or draw close to him? There's many different things, but I feel like what the Lord keeps bringing me back to, the two greatest means in this season of my life and probably ever will be Number one, his word. 
God inspired this book and gave it to us as a means of growing in and communicating with him. We need to know it. We need to study it. We need to love it. Scripture is our lifeline. Going back to talking about absolute truth for a moment, there will never be a feeling that you have that overrides what the Bible says. I shared in the first service as a pastor who has counseled numerous people in all situations and circumstances of life, nothing is more discouraging and saddening than to see people buy into this false premise that God is chiefly concerned with their happiness and as such, he must want them to do whatever makes them feel happy and that be in complete and utter contradiction to his word. That will never be the case, ever. There will never be a feeling that you have that overrides the unmutable, unchangeable principles of the word of God, ever. And it's heartbreaking when I do it. I'm not immune to that, I do it too. To say, oh, it's all right, I can do, I can get away with this here or this there or, you know, this bad attitude here. Whatever it may be, we're all guilty of that. There will never be a feeling that we have that overrides what the Bible says. But we often use our feelings to excuse away certain things we may not like about Scripture. And the truth is this morning that our feelings don't define Scripture. Scripture should define our feelings. It is our mooring and connection to truth in the midst of relativism. It is absolute. It is eternal. It is our source of truth. My thoughts and feelings come and go like the wind. My emotions can be manipulated and impact my feelings and thoughts. See, Scripture is constant. It cannot be influenced or manipulated by outside sources. With utmost diligence, we must be committed to the centrality and the full counsel of God's Word in our lives. What does it look like to be committed to the Word? we got to read it, we got to study it, and we got to memorize it. I give kudos to my wife here uh, in this moment. I shared a couple weeks ago, I shared in the first service. She's really good at this, and, it, and it's been a source of encouragement to me. Uh, so uh, most evenings, about every evening, uh, even if it means that I have to put the children to bed by myself kind of thing, I know she's going to be getting ready to walk outside on the treadmill, whatever it may be. But that is with, that's by design. And every time I see her, you know, she's got her earbuds in and listening to worship music or whatever, while she is memorizing Romans chapter 8. We were, uh, we've been challenged as a, a small group in church and really our churches and as a whole to, to memorize scripture. And she's memorizing Romans chapter 8. And that's been a source of encouragement uh, to me. We need to memorize God's word. See, if you're like me, you may find it hard to make time for it, or it may feel more informational than transformational. You may not feel all warm and fuzzy, or you may not frankly feel like it. If you're waiting for a specific feeling to prioritize the word of God in your life, it may never happen. As my pastor J.D. Greer says, often you might not always feel your way into actions, but you most assuredly will always act your way into feelings. Growing in our knowledge and understanding of Scripture is a means of abiding in Christ. Second way we abide is we abide in Christ through prayer. We have the ability to communicate in a personal way with the creator of the universe. I know a lot of us are intimidated by the idea of prayer. We think that either we aren't capable of praying correctly or that we don't have the time. Prayer is simply communicating. We have a, an acronym. I didn't share this in the first service. But we have an acronym uh, at church called ACTS, right? So it's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And then we try, we try to follow that. You don't have to do that, but it's helpful. You know, we, we uh, do adoration to God for who he is. Thankfulness is for what he's done. Or sorry, confession, we confess uh, our, our inability. And thankfulness is for what he's done. And supplication finally is what we, what we ask for, what we're praying about. Prayer is simply communicating, just as we communicate in our earthly relationships as a way to cultivate and grow that relationship. Prayer is communicating with Christ. It's okay. Be honest. Be raw. God is big enough to handle your feelings and frustrations. In fact, he already knows them before you communicate them. There is nothing so big or too small for God to handle. 
a verse that we're all probably intimately familiar with, 1 Peter 5, 7, tells us to give all our worries and cares to God because he cares for you. As we grow in the discipline of prayer, we are actively abiding in Christ. As we close, if we are to grow in our understanding and practice of trusting God, of being still and allowing the conquering comforter to do his work in us, we must actively seek to abide in him. The abiding of Jesus' word in us means that his words find a home in us. They fit, they belong. When the word abides in me, it finds a place, a home. It's not foreign, it belongs. You move other things around and even get rid of some things so that the word has room. Consequently, the words of Jesus don't abide in us without effect. When they take root in our lives, they produce faith and holiness. Jesus says in John 17, 17, that your word is truth. So when his words abide in us, sanctification happens. We are transformed. Holiness, Christ-likeness happens. The growth of us becoming more like Christ. Meditating on and abiding in the word take time and intentionality. As we said earlier, there's so much clutter that we deal with in our lives today, so much that competes for our time, so much outside influence trying to take root in our lives. And if you're like me, I know often instead of being still and trusting, we get wrapped up in trying to work out the outcomes for ourselves. I get so focused on what others are saying or doing or thinking I should be doing instead of focusing on what the truth of Scripture says. And oftentimes I allow the hardship in my circumstances to affect my attitude rather than the word abiding in me. I close with this analogy in the first service. I'll share it with you. Uh, I've got three kids. My two oldest are boys. One had his birthday yesterday. Paxton turned nine. And uh, Maverick, who is his name, um, is five. He's almost six. And so there, if you've got kids, you know how it is, but particularly two boys that are that close in age, man, they, they're all boy and they, um, they're knocked down, drag out and Maverick's not going to let the older one give him anything. He'll, he'll, he'll fight right back. And so just, they're, they're amazing, great kids, but just as kids do, they, you know, play rough. And, um, there are often times where, they'll get so focused on what they're doing about he said this or he did this or he, he looked at me wrong and they'll, they'll get competing playing sports or something like that and they're not going to be outdone by the other that they really get into it, right? And so it sounds like a herd of elephants, you know, wrestling around upstairs and being a, being a loving and diligent parent, I see the writing on the wall and I'm trying to separate them before things get too, too out of control, right? Too out of hand. But in the midst of all of that, they're so focused on what the other one is doing and saying and that they can't even see me or Bethany there talking to them. They're not acknowledging that we're speaking because they're so wrapped up or focused on one another. And so we do our best to try to be gospel-centered in our approach as parents and separate them and get them in their own corners. And so when we finally get that done, I remember I was talking with Paxton in one of those instances and trying to get him, you know, separated and listening to what I had to say. And I'm trying to talk to him and be patient and communicate truth so he can learn in that moment. And he's trying to talk over me about what Maverick did and all this kind of stuff. And I finally got him quiet. And I said, Paxton, the only voice that you should be listening to the only voice that matters is me, your dad's. You shouldn't be worried about what he's saying or anybody else. When I'm talking to you, when I call you, when I'm trying to speak to you, the only voice you should be focused on is mine. And I remember the Holy Spirit in that moment wrecking me saying, Brandon, you are the exact same way. The only voice that should matter in your life is mine. The only source of truth should be mine. How true is that of all of us? We get so focused, worried about controlling the outcomes, manipulating the outcomes, what he said, she said, they did, whatever it may be, that we miss the voice of our Father who is calling us and inviting us to partake in this beautiful peace and joy that passes all understanding inviting us and commanding us to be still. 
Holy Spirit is reminding me, and I hope he's reminding you of that this morning, that his voice and his truth is what should be heard the loudest in your life. His voice causes all the other things that I'm yelling about or fighting about with or fighting with to cease. So my question to you this morning is this. Can you hear God's voice in your life? Can you hear his voice in your life? This morning he is demanding that we be still, that we loosen our grip, that we cede control of whatever circumstance we may be dealing with in life, that we ultimately cede control of our life. We ask two questions about when someone's getting baptized at our church, and it's simply this. Has Jesus done everything necessary uh, to secure your salvation? Hopefully the answer is yes, or they won't be getting baptized. And the second one is this. Are you willing to go where he go, tells you to go and do what he tells you to do? That's the gospel. That's what his voice in my life looks like. Maybe that's you this morning and you've never gotten to the place where you say, you know what, my plans for my life, whatever that may be, I am yielding control of that and God, ultimately, I'm gonna go where you tell me to go and do what you tell me to do. He is inviting us. He is reminding us this morning that he brings about a pure joy and peace that is incorruptible. That we can be still in the midst of our suffering and our difficulties. That he will keep us in peace as our mind is fixed on him and as we abide in him. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for our time together this morning. God, we thank you for your word, for its unchangeable truth. God, I pray in this moment if there's anyone here that has never trusted on you as Savior. God, they've never yielded to you as Lord of their life, that today would be the day. God, your word tells us that we have an inability to choose you. Ten times out of ten, we will choose sin. But apart from your love and mercy, we can't choose you. And so I pray that today is that day. God, if there's somebody here that has not trusted on you, that today is the day that you awaken them to your mercy and their need for you. You are lovingly waiting for us to come to you. You tell us in your word, whoever calls on you, whoever comes to you, you will not cast out. And so I pray today that today is the day. For those who are here, God, who are dealing with suffering, hardships, surgeries on the horizon, whatever it may be, financial issues, wayward child that they've prayed for for years. God, if there are people who are hurt and frustrating, that your Holy Spirit would remind them that you have not forsaken them, that you are not unsympathetic to your children. God, that you're offering us a peace and a joy in the midst of our circumstances. God, we thank you for all that you've done. God, we thank you that you promise us that your word won't return void. And we pray that that would be an encouragement to everyone today and ask these things in your name. Amen. Stand with me, please, if you would. Words are on the screen, and we're going to sing together. And as we do, if you'd like to come for prayer, we invite you to come. We need him.